Welcome to the Broadband Bunch, a podcast about broadband and how it impacts us all. Join us to learn about the state of the industry and the latest innovations and trends. Connect with the thought leaders, pioneers, and policymakers helping to shape your future through broadband. This episode of the Broadband Bunch is sponsored by ETI Software, your zero-touch automation experts. By Calix, simplify, excite, grow. By DXTEL, creators of the Harper Broadband Marketing Library. By ITK Solutions Group, process first, technology second. And by Utopia Fiber, building a more connected nation. Hello and welcome again to another episode of the Broadband Bunch. My name is Pete Pizzatello and I am joined today by David Guilford. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Pete. It's a real pleasure to be on be on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into um, a little bit about your past. It's a really interesting background as well as who, you know, the Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, um, where you're leading the policy and strategic partnerships. Um, and you have a really interesting background. You've been in this private public sector areas for infrastructure for some time. Did some work with uh, HR and A advisors. You co-founded two different organizations, Broadband Equity Partnerships and Connected Communities, and have some um, experience working with the city of New York. So thank you for joining the show. Um, I, hopefully I didn't steal too much of your thunder, but just to give a little bit more context about those different um, roles that you had and really what's driven you to uh, help infrastructure in America would, would, be, uh, would be great for our listeners to hear. Great. Well, thanks, thanks for that introduction, Pete. Um, I guess my my journey into broadband really starts before broadband actually existed. Uh, despite being a, a card carrying member of, of Gen X, I was lucky to have um, access to uh, computer networks from a from a pretty early age. First on sort of dial up bulletin board systems, then CompuServe systems like that. Um, but when I when I did finally get access to the internet in in, in college, I was um, I was really struck by the kind of the opportunities that it created for for people regardless of, of location started working on it first as an economics major thinking about the increases in connectivity in developing countries what that would might mean from an economic competitiveness perspective but then really like throughout my throughout my career despite not being a technologist by training found myself drawn to thinking about the ways that innovation in sort of the the quote digital world could have real world impact um, and that drew me both to um, as, as, as you noted, public sector opportunities as well as private sector opportunities and really um, with kind of the, the connecting thread being this recognition that the fundamental infrastructure, whether it's we're talking about energy or, or broadband or um, transportation, that um, that connects people to each other and to opportunities is something that needs to um, needs to grow despite the challenges that deploying infrastructure and, and moving um atoms uh, can, can really uh, can really cause. So just thinking about the difference between how easy innovation is, uh, relatively speaking, in software, as opposed to how long it takes to get to get things done in the built environment. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we talk about broadband as kind of the next utility, but I think infrastructure, the fabric, the foundation of a lot. And, and that's something that we like to feature on the show is all the potential ways that um, broadband has uh, touches communities, touches people, innovation. Um, you're currently working with Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, or SIP, and it's a pretty interesting organization. It's um, a lot of different facets. Maybe you can just help us understand, you know, what the mission is uh, currently and, and kind of the origins of that of the organization. 
Sure. So, so SIP, as we as we call it, is um, a pretty unique organization in that we're structured as a holding company focused on the future of infrastructure. And what that means is that we think across um, the, all the different verticals that make up infrastructure, from energy systems to digital infrastructure to transportation and waste and things like that, and think about how technolo- technological innovations are um, potentially coinciding with the um, the needs of, of cities and policymakers to identify where technology can uh, can make radical improvements to infrastructure particularly focused on how to make things more sustainable resilient and inclusive and so what we do is a mixture of what you could think of as, as um, more technology investing type work so actually funding the development of, of new technology or acquiring technologies but also project development looking for opportunities to do real flagship projects at scale that can take uh, innovation out of the the laboratory and really show the impact when it gets into a, an infrastructure system um, that that can be in partnership with a, a state or city government. It could also be something that is that is done with the private sector. But in every case, it's really about taking a um, an innovation and combining it with some capital and a business model, and deploying it in a way that can uh, can be a, an improvement over the status quo. Yeah, it's a really interesting mission, you know, I, and I think about a lot of the infrastructure projects uh, going back, you know, shovel ready is a term that a lot of the industry uses, right? And and I think, you know, connectivity ready is probably kind of the next evolution of that whole piece, because I think our, our idea of infrastructure has been so grounded in just kind of the civil engineering roads and construction pieces of it and adding the technological you know, it's, it's, it's hand in hand, right? I mean, I think that's part of what I think we've all kind of understood, but not really recognized and planned for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does. And I'm thinking back. So, so SIP as an organization um, was, was founded in 2019 as a, as a, as a spin out. And, and really at the time, the, this approach wasn't yet proven, but you know, with this belief that technology could fundamentally transform infrastructure, um, it, it, I think it, it went hand in hand with an expansive definition of infrastructure, and that's something that mm-hmm. has uh, has has really manifested itself through things like the bipartisan infrastructure law that take a much broader definition of infrastructure than than one had um, than people often often did in the past. And so that means I think you know the so kind of the, the the natural segue to broadband is that quite separate from any any debates over whether is broadband should it legally be a utility or not it has truly become something that is critical to everything from medicine to education and so thinking about what does that mean given that criticality how should uh, how should a, a a city government for example be thinking about connectivity it's both become more central but also there are new tools um, at at the disposal of say municipal leaders you know, through this um, coincidence of the availability of federal funding, as well as new new forms of technology. Um, so I'd love to go like a little bit more in, in deeper in that into the, into this conversation of just thinking about what is the, what does it mean that now you have innovations of uh, broadband connectivity itself that has been happening, combined mm-hmm. with now a, more of a of a political will and some meaningful dollars being committed at the at the federal level. That's yeah, a billion dollar question, right? Um, I mean, you guys are involved in a lot of different things, initiatives, a lot of educational uh, summits that you guys provide to try to foster this conversation. Um, logistic systems or the logistic, looking at the logistic ecosystem, excuse me. Um, one of the topics I want to dig into was around uh, community wireless coalition. There's some information, there's kind of a white paper that you guys, a thought paper that you guys have put out there, some interesting um, ideas, one of which is talking about reimagining urban broadband deployments. You know, can you just kind of frame that up and, and what what uh, what that's all about? Yeah, and the, the the work with the community wireless coalition, I think, is a is sort of an interesting case study because it cuts across the 
the sort of traditional types of, of, of silos. And this this work actually dates back to um, work that I was doing at, with the Broadband Equity Partnership prior to to joining SIP, but in, in collaboration with a number of other organizations, in, including SIP. And what this um, really was in response to is the, sort of the both the the centrality of the need for better connectivity to serve community residents, along with the sort of relative lack of success of the status quo in closing persistent digital divides in you know, even in, in the most urban environments, including New York City, where, where I am. And in, to some extent, the civic leaders who get hear complaints from their constituents about either the, the cost of, of broadband service or the lack of, of reliability, which certainly became uh, became a central factor during during the first wave of, of COVID-19, the sort of kind of belies the fact that typically a municipal leader has had very little uh, ability to shape the deployment of broadband within within their community. There, uh, there are franchise agreements, there are incumbents, there are a number of uh, mechanisms through which broadband is, is deployed. But in, in, in very few of those does a civic leader, let alone a community leader, have, the, have much of an ability to shape the, where deployments happen, what services are provided, and, and so forth. And rather than rather than being locked in a debate about municipal ISPs versus private sector ISPs, we saw an opportunity to really to really think about what does what does a community wireless network look like? What are its objectives, and and how might um, how might a partnership between the public and private sector be able to develop a more locally tailored solution? And our our thesis in the Community Wireless Coalition is in part that the assets that a community controls, whether we're talking about light poles or, or building rooftops and so forth, can be harnessed to provide a base level of, of wireless infrastructure that can be shared. And really, if you think about the developments in open access fiber networks and how that has led to, um, to some vibrant competitive markets in, um, in, a number of, in a number of jurisdictions, what might be the equivalent for the wireless world, where you have not just not just shared towers, but on a small cell basis, shared infrastructure that includes virtualized um, radios, bring, whether it's bring your own spectrum or a shared spectrum, the ability to share not only physical space but also fiber, also power, and uh, and, and even the radios themselves. So the Community Wireless Coalition published a white paper in uh, early 2021 that outlined a bit of a bit of this thesis, and it's something that I, I've continued to be um, very engaged with today. So yeah, there's there's a lot in there. Um, so two aspects that I'd, I would love to dig into is how do there's a lot of hesitancy, concern, uh, anxiety, if you will, around civic leaders to 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 be the you know to lead the this broadband digital gap closing. Um, you know, there's just a lot of pressure on folks that are, have to step into areas that they're not necessarily trained for, but they understand the need for. So that's one. So how are we helping there? The other is. In that model, it's just like a, like in an open access network model in, in the fiber space, the ecosystem is key, right? I mean, to have kind of shared assets and collaboration among private, public, or entities, you need to bring the private folks along as well. So can you talk about those two aspects? How do civic leaders, you know, how, how are you helping them kind of, A, understand the, the issues, the importance, and then gain the courage or confidence to move in that direction? And B, how do you see the private side of this equation playing out? I think one one thing that's that's common across both of those, those those questions is just the the need for more trust and understanding about both what is technically feasible as well as what makes sense from a business model perspective and what are people's incentives in in doing this. Um, on the civic side of things, 
one city versus and compared to another or a county versus a rural area there are tremendous variabilities in local capacity on the um, on the governmental side and so understanding where you're coming from i think is is, is critical there um, and setting the appropriate expectations in terms of what um, what what really can be within the the civic leaders control or sort of sphere of influence as opposed to something where they have to take a little bit little bit more of a back seat i think that the one of the one of the possible good outcomes of this federal infrastructure funding is the ability to build more capacity at the at, at the local level that may be in in partnership with um, with philanthropies um, for example some of my former colleagues have launched the national broadband resource hub with support from a number of uh, of national philanthropies to provide to civic leaders templates of successful rfps public private partnerships um, example studies scopes of work things like that that because no even though every every town or every city has differences, there's no need to reinvent the wheel in you know, each jurisdiction. And so being able to share lessons learned and best practices, I think, can enable um, people to feel more confident in taking, in taking that more active role. On on the private sector side of things, I think there's um, there's a bit of a phased approach that that's needed. I think looking at um, what has been done in in other countries, including in, in Europe and in places like New Zealand, where carriers have a history of sharing infrastructure, um, I, I think that there's there's some lessons to be learned from that. But I think there's a, there's a bit of an incrementalism that that needs to happen here, so that even if you were to have um, a new a new project launch launch tomorrow, having some Anchor tenants or anchor carriers is is important. Maybe I think a mix of having a, um, a public sector use case. So whether it's a school district that's trying to provide connectivity, or a municipality that's trying to provide better IoT coverage for for whatever smart city use cases they're developing, combining that with a forward thinking um, ISP, whether it's a, a national or or a local um, local entrant. I think is a is kind of a way to prove that this to prove that this works, prove the security, the stability, and, and all of that, um, because it's not the, the system as we have in, in in the United States, of course, was was built over over decades, if uh, if if not if not longer, and so start so rather than tr- attempting to change things overnight, I think there's really a. a, a a need and an opportunity to take these new technologies, test them at a meaningful scale, and and learn and, and develop and sort of build the ecosystem as we go. Yeah, I think you're right. I think evolutionary is or an evolutionary approach is a inevitable. Um, do you see any any language in some of the federal bills out there that are um, encouraging the kind of partnerships so that we bring people to the table? Because I think you know. Goodwill is it will happen. Um, you know there are some disruptors in the marketplace on the private sector side, which will I think would be more likely to make these partnerships were possible. But it's still there's still some major you know major players that I think if we can figure out how to get them to the table and more collaboratively, uh, you start moving the needle uh, more significantly. Yeah. The so the so the language that was contained in in the bipartisan infrastructure law or the IIJA certainly welcomed public private partnerships and explicitly referenced that they um, that they are an eligible use of uh, use of funds which i think is certainly is certainly a start i think one of the the challenges of implementation of federal infrastructure spending more broadly is the degree to which the United States is, is pretty decentralized. So the mm-hmm. fact that money often gets transferred to a state and then the state has their own policies and, and programs for 
deploying it down to the um, to the municipal level and certain states have different restrictions on on uh, municipal broadband and things like that it means that we're not going to see a one size fits all approach but that's probably just just as well it means that um, some places are probably going to take more of an innovative approach and prove that and prove what what is what can work and, and what is possible um, you know, a number of states, of course, have set up broadband offices over the, over the past decade, and so some of those that have already done an, a bunch of work to identify the different needs of, of, of different communities and to have begun that sort of outreach, including with the private sector, I think are well positioned now to take advantage of, of, of some of this funding as it as as it comes along. Yeah, I mean, so let's help some of our listeners kind of self-identify. So, what are you know what's the sweet spot in, in the in the motions movement that you guys have had so far? What do you see are great characteristics of you know areas where this model can um, be most successful, or at least you know start being successful? Yeah, I think mid-sized cities generally say maybe in the hundred thousand to five hundred thousand population range. I think are in a are in a pretty sweet spot for being early adopters of of some of this type of approach, uh, both because they have the scale that means that there is a market demand from uh, from national carriers to provide 5G service, for, for example, but they also tend to not be as complex of entities as um, as, as, as a place like, like New York or, or Chicago or some of the, the, the largest cities. I think, though, that thinking in a regional approach as opposed to a one-off city-by-city approach is really important, though, whether we're thinking about how a um, a number of municipalities in you know through a county mechanism or through or through a nonprofit sort of smart region alliance how they can come together to uh, to find to find a solution I think that is also something that that's quite promising because really it is a matter of finding um, the the kind of combination of market demand and assets that are within a, a, a city or a jurisdiction's control that are that are critical and just to make it clear in terms of what are the assets that cities have do you control today that could bring a lot of value to these public-private partnerships, and for which they should they should be compensated? Include, of course, things like poles and rooftops, but also includes municipal fi- fiber networks, even if they currently exist primarily for, say, connecting city buildings to one another. Thinking about how to use those um, as as ways to provide um, to provide value to a public-private partnership that, in turn, can serve both commercial and um, and local governmental and non and nonprofit interests. Um, I think. Cities that have that have both built assets over over the past decades, but that also have a real understanding of what exists and what and what doesn't um, is, is certainly important. Uh, I've certainly seen a number of, of of cities where there's a disconnect between what actually exists and what what has been mapped and what is easily mm. accessible. Hmm. So, you know, I think it's a microcosm of the the challenge that we have as a country where the data at you know, the federal level about where broadband exists and where where there's fiber sure. and and performance and all of that doesn't quite um, match the the neat numbers that can that can show up when you when you sort of Google it and look at a, look at a you know FCC database. The difference between that and what's actually happening on the ground can can of course be stark. Yeah, it's a whole other conversation there. Um, so I, I, you talked about investment. I, I see SIP uh, has made some investment in uh, dense air. Uh, you know, can, what's the motivation for that, and how do you see that fitting into some of the some of the issues that you've outlined already? Yeah, so we're we're excited about um, about dense air for for a number of reasons. One is that they've been a leading um, provider and uh, developer of shared neutral host wireless networks. So essentially, the um, as we were talking about earlier, the the concept of you know an open access fiber type model on, on the wireless side of things. They've developed technology that enables um, the shared use of um, a single 
um, single like architecturally consistent wireless infrastructure across a number of users. They have um, and they've they've proven that through projects operating in, in Europe, for for example. And so we're excited to combine that with SIP's focus on the digital divide and really on being a partner to the public sector to to combine not just the, the technology that exists, but also um, a business model that has to, takes a long-term approach to thinking over the course of, of a decade or more, how a, a network can be operated and run sustainably so as not to require ongoing um, financial um, support from, say, the federal government. I think one one lesson from the first generation of wireless networks that, that cities deployed, particularly Wi-Fi networks, is that um, it's it's one thing to to build a network and to get people to use it, but over uh, over the course of say uh, the next five to ten years, an approach to maintaining and upgrading it is has often been challenging for cities because that requires ongoing financial contributions that may not be covered by the, whatever the initial funding source was that made the project possible in the first place. And I think you put your finger right on it, right? I mean, that's something that we we talk a lot about, you know, not to be pejorative, but, you know, who's the adult supervising all this money and planning that's going on? Are we, you know, people get concerned about overbuilding, but I'm more concerned about what you just described in terms of affordability, sustainability, right? And so having a, if there's, in lieu of having a federal voice or body that's kind of helping folks calm down and figure out how to make the most sustainable path forward where everybody uh, achieves their goal. Um, having a private body that can have, you know, pockets of influence because obviously you can't do this federally or nationwide. Um, I think it's really a, a great need that we all don't know that we need yet. <laughs> um, maybe in a couple of years when we are asking the same questions, like what's, where's the next round of funding to, you know, to keep these systems that we've deployed in a hurry. Um, running. Um, and that's one of my fears, right? But I guess, you know, what keeps you up at night, right? So there is a big awareness. There's a ton of money coming both from the private side, the public side. Um, are we going to be able to close this gap? And if if not, why? Um, and then we could talk about how we can get ahead of that. I think we absolutely have the ability to close the gap, but there are some significant risks and, and challenges ahead. And the the fact that we have we're, we're measuring federal support now in in tens of billions of dollars, if not you know not 100 billion plus, is is a real cause for optimism. But that said, this is not an opportunity that's going to come around multiple times in, in the near future. So, my my biggest fear at the moment is that the allocation of funding ends up building networks that either are unsustainable or that don't meet the needs of the of the users and. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't think that a focus on you know, what technology is best is the is the right approach because there are always um, people that are going to argue for for one particular technology o- over another. Same, I think. I think goes with uh, with with overbuilding. Really, it's a matter of making sure that the people who don't have internet access that meets kind of the basic standards of today that they that they get that access and that. That may be um, it may be wireless in some cases, it may be fiber in others, um, but that really um, recognizing that the sort of the the final link. You know, we like to talk a lot about last mile in this industry. I think there's a there's another last mile challenge here that, that that we don't talk about as much, which is about actually getting people to sign up and use the service that requires real on the ground 
local partnerships with digital equity organizations, with others to understand why is it that in a city like New York, still close to a third of people don't have broadband access at home, even though in most cases, technically it is available. You know, is it, is it affordability? Is it education? Is it lack of devices? It's, you know, in my, in my view, it's, it's a, it's a mixture of all of those things with different, um, sort of different things being the deciding factor in, in different neighborhoods um, and making sure that as we, as we deploy billions of dollars in infrastructure, that we are not losing sight of, of that piece of it, I think is, I think is critical. Um, and that's both, both in terms of deciding what places are worthy of new infrastructure investment, but also making sure that as, as um, connectivity is built out, that there's both the funding and the local knowledge that is needed to make sure that people actually are able to take full advantage of that service. Yeah. It's an, you know, digital equity and, and, um, getting folks educated on how, what it's, that's going to be massive. You know, I don't know how you do that at scale, especially when people are disconnected. Um, but it's a good point. Um, so you've been involved in a lot of areas of this problem set on the, on the policy side and on the municipality side, on the investment side. Um, you've had a interesting journey along the way. Um, and this is our, our back in time question, right? Um, so you go back early and you start in your career, you know, you know, what insight or suggestions would you give yourself um, knowing what you know today? Well, first and foremost, I think I'd just reassure myself that the, some of the some of the things that I, I struggled with at the time of is you know is this the right time to be in the public sector is this the right time to be in the private sector that not not to worry as much about about those that the you know, I, I'm I feel very lucky to have had the career that I've had to date um, so there's not a piece that I'd go over and say oh I actually should have gone to this company instead of, instead of that company but really I mean maybe maybe thinking about the on the education side of things I was a liberal arts major and I always had a appreciation for technology it might have been interesting to take a you know go a little bit more more in depth into um you know whether it's on computer science or engineering side uh, you know a class or two i don't think it would have changed uh, changed things dramatically but really just to have you know felt that that freedom to continue to exploring you know i think from a just truly practical perspective i think if i'd realized a little bit more about the financial implications of watching the growth of connectivity. I probably could have made a lot more money if, you know, for example, like if I was a very early user of like eBay and Google and Amazon and stuff like that in the nineties, but I didn't ever buy stock or anything in that. I was just really focused on thinking what it can do and you know, enjoying using those, those services and helping others, helping my family get connected and things like that. Right. Um, but it, it is interesting to just, you know, to, to think hypothetically around, uh, you know, what, what that means and how to, and how to kind of translate that in, into everything you see today with web three and, um, blockchain and all the kind of hype around various new technologies and kind of the often, often a sort of disconnect between the, um, sort of wealth creation of some of these new types of technology and the application of it for, uh, for solving real, real problems. Yeah, no, good advice. I'm glad it was honest advice too, right? Invest in Yahoo, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and Google and everybody else. Yeah, no, I agree. I think going back and realizing that it's not just kind of an innovation or technology that it's going to be a platform, right? And is what you guys are all describing. I think that's really critical. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, majority of the United States still hasn't gotten that message yet. Right. So, um, it should be and interesting. I, I, yeah. That's what we all do. Go and ahead. I think that, you know, the thing about infrastructure as a platform is probably a good, a good framing generally too, because so many of the, 
the technologies that have come to dominate our, our lives are built on pretty ancient platforms. Right? If you think mm-hmm. about you know, even um, you know, Uber wouldn't be possible without the smartphone or without GPS, but it also wouldn't be possible without the sort of the roads and the street grid and all the innovation that, that came before it. And these things can, right. you know, can be both positive and, and negative, but it does mean that as we're, as we're planning where broadband is going, for example, or what, what is kind of a quote, sufficient level of access or speed that it does set the parameters for a whole range of other businesses and other, and other use, uh, use cases that they'll ultimately run on top of, uh, on top of that technology. Right. We saw that in the, you know, kind of with the, with the dot-com bubble and companies like Global Crossing putting fiber all over the world, even though people didn't really know what to do with it yet. And then, you know, those, right. those companies didn't, didn't make it in many cases, but they laid the groundwork for incredible, um, you know, decades of innovation after, um, to come after that. Yeah. I mean, Amazon, Jeff Bezos wouldn't be a trillionaire without the roads, right? I mean, that's exactly there's how many trucks do you see out there? You know, you're right. And I think that's, that's what I love about the effort that you guys are putting together is really just pulling it into the infrastructure conversation. So it's part and parcel of the conversation, not a afterthought or an an extension of it. Um, So thank you for uh, sharing all that and everything you're doing. I'm looking forward to um, kind of revisiting some of the progress that you guys make over the next year. Uh, how do, how do, how do people, how do our listeners learn more about, um, sidewalk, uh, infrastructure partners? Well, I'd recommend first starting with, with our website, which is sidewalkinfra.com. We publish a monthly newsletter and there's a, there's a link to sign up for that at the, at the bottom of our news and insights page, which also has a bunch of information on, on some of our work. And then, uh, it suggests certainly following us on LinkedIn and Twitter and things like that, as well as I'm, I'm personally easy to find on either of those and, and try to share a bit of my, my thinking as much as possible. Yeah, we'll include the links to that. And you're also speaking at a couple of places as well. So, um, you know, keep spreading the word. Hopefully we can add to that uh, momentum. And thank you for joining us. Really enjoyed uh, unpacking everything that you guys have been doing and, and best of luck helping uh, closing that divide. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I just want to thank you also for um, for publishing the Broadband Bunch because it's been a great, uh, great personal source of uh, information and conversations over over the years as well. And uh, grateful for this opportunity to appear on the show. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Hopefully, have you back. Thanks, David. All right. Thanks, Pete.